Every March, a kind of madness descends upon our subculture, doesn't it? Many of you know exactly what I'm talking about. You came to church today excited about the weather, but not excited about your bracket. You may have been excited that your alma mater made it into the big dance, and the NCAA tournament is a tradition in our country that is pretty amazing. Candidly, I don't follow a particular team. I follow the NCAA tournament, not because I'm a huge fan of NCAA basketball, I'm not against it, just have other things to do, but I follow the tournament because I love underdog stories. I'm captivated by the games that are the upsets. I love what some would call the Cinderella story, you know, where an undervalued team is suddenly able to outperform and pull off a surprising victory. Some of you watch for the same reason. You know it's part of the appeal of the NCAA tournament. But here's my question. Have you ever wondered why we love underdog stories? Ever wonder why we love those sort of Cinderella moments? There's actually been a number of sociological and psychological studies. One author suggests there's three reasons why we love those stories. First, some people don't really cheer for the underdog, they just want the victor to lose. (laughs) They're not into winning, they're into losing. They like to see the number one seed Defeated, So the pleasure is not in the victory of the underdog, but in the defeat of the powerhouse. For those of us in Indianapolis, you don't care in football who Tom Brady plays for, you just want him to lose. (laughs) Even if he comes back out of retirement. Second reason, not only do you want just someone to lose, the second reason we cheer for the underdog is that people cheer for the underdog out of a sense of justice like to see a smaller school with less money and less support, maybe a, an undervalued coach win because it just seems right. You get tired of seeing top-notch teams win all the time. Third reason, others root for the Cinderella team, quite frankly, because it's just more fun. There's no emotional letdown because the team is expected to lose. So if the Cinderella team loses, well, They were supposed to lose, no big deal. But if they win, it's amazing, it's a great story. So even if there aren't any underdog stories in this year's tournament, although I suspect there probably will be, millions of people will watch because of the possibility of an upset. And there's something about that upset that is deeply appealing and motivating. But think with me for a moment, If that upset, if that underdog story wasn't merely a possibility, what if somehow the NCAA tournament could guarantee, even promise, at least two upsets in every tournament? What if it was guaranteed? Would that motivate you to watch? Probably would. Let me take this another step and connect it to Isaiah 54 and 55. What if when we're talking about an upset or a Cinderella story, we're not talking about basketball, but instead we're talking about your life? Isn't the possibility of a disaster turning around really hopeful? 
Isn't it motivating when you have hope that something that seems impossible could actually change? Some of you are there right now. You're in a relationship conflict that seems impossible. You're in a financial situation that seems untenable. You're in the middle of some major family crisis or some internal moral struggle, and you look at it and say, there's no way. And what if? What if there was actually hope that that thing could change? The whole reason that the book of Revelation is in the Bible is to help us to know what the final score is. And here's the thing. The Bible doesn't merely highlight the possibility of redemption. The Bible doesn't merely highlight the possibility of a turnaround story. The Bible doesn't merely highlight the possibility that those who look at their life and say this is impossible actually find that it is possible. The Bible doesn't highlight the possibility of redemption. Listen to this. The Bible promises redemption. And this promise of redemption, this promise that it's going to turn around the greatest upset ever creates then an invitation for us to draw near to God. So if you want it really simply stated, the whole point of this sermon is this, the promise of redemption creates an invitation to draw near to God. The promise of redemption creates the invitation for you to draw near to God. That's not only true at a macro level, like Genesis to Revelation, the promise of redemption creates an invitation to draw near, not only at a macro level, but at a micro level. You're here today in church, and we're going to center our minds and hearts on this matter of redemption for the purpose of an invitation. Those two words will serve as our outline today, a promised redemption and a divine invitation. So first, this promised redemption in Isaiah chapter 54, promised redemption. Look at verse one. Sing, O barren one, who did not bear Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor, for the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. So we find here the first of three metaphors. There's a metaphor of a barren woman, a metaphor of an adulterous spouse, and the metaphor of a destroyed city. All three of them are meant to draw to conclusion this second section in Isaiah where the prophet is encouraging people who are going to be in exile, this is how you believe that God is going to help you. He invites the people of God to believe in God's ability to provide comfort and hope And in order to do that, he uses three emotionally laden metaphors to help us not just know that God can redeem, to not just know that God can help us, but for us to feel it in ways that we wouldn't feel it without these metaphors. The first one 
in verses one to three is a barren woman who sings. The text says, sing, O barren one. And then it reiterates the promise. The children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married. So what Isaiah does here is he uses a tender and deeply personal metaphor. The metaphor is plainly that it is painful when one desires children and one is not able to conceive. What's more, it's the pain of desiring children but not being married. Some of you, many of you, know this pain, whether it's the desire for children and not being able to conceive or whether it's desiring children and not being married. And Isaiah uses this metaphor to describe the deep grief that the whole nation feels over their disappointment. They don't feel blessed. They feel barren. And Isaiah promises them that there's coming a day when their pain and disappointment will be eclipsed by the spiritual blessings under God's care. They will sing, but when you are barren, it's hard to imagine singing over children. For some of you, this isn't a metaphor, this is deeply personal. You know the deep pain of barrenness, you know the disappointment of really good desires but unrealized desires, and while this text isn't a guarantee of children in this lifetime, for those of you who this metaphor strikes in a hard and painful way, I hope at one level it's comforting to you to know that this text acknowledges that there's a unique suffering when it comes to barrenness. It's one thing to have the gift of singleness. It's another one to not want to be single and what's more to want children and to have that desire unfulfilled. Part of the pain is probably the insensitivity of others. You have to apply a lot of grace. And I want you to know that this text uses this metaphor specifically because the Bible resonates with how hard that is. And I hope it's helpful at some level for you to see that the Bible acknowledges that's really painful. In fact, it's the first metaphor that Isaiah uses, he uses it on purpose. Because it takes a lot of faith to believe that you can keep trusting when your disappointment is so deep. Isaiah uses this metaphor because a barren woman singing over children is a miracle. He uses this metaphor to capture the promised redemption of God's people, that the barren, listen to this, will be so blessed that they will sing and they will remember their barrenness no more. Now Isaiah is speaking about a future day. He's using that future promise as a way to encourage God's people right now. First metaphor, the barren woman who sings. Here's the second one, the unfaithful spouse is affirmed. If the first metaphor is about deliverance from disappointment, the second metaphor is a different emotion. It's the deliverance from shame. Verse four, behold, or verse four, rather, fear not, for you will not be ashamed nor confounded 
for you will not be disgraced, for you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood, you will remember no more. Specifically, this is the deliverance from the shame of marital unfaithfulness. And Isaiah uses this example as a way for the people of God to marvel at God's love and his grace in light of their failure. You see, throughout the scriptures, the Bible identifies that spiritual idolatry is often called marital infidelity when it comes to God's people and their relationship with him. In fact, in Isaiah chapter one and verse 21, the city of Jerusalem, Isaiah gets in the grill of God's people and he calls them a prostitute. And in chapter 50 and verse one, Isaiah talks about the certificate of divorce that God gave his people. He gives them a certificate of divorce and he calls them a prostitute because they were wayward. And yet, what's incredible in Isaiah 54 is that God promises redemption, an underdog story, that people who are filled with shame and confusion and disgrace will still be loved and they will be affirmed. Look at verse seven and eight of chapter 54. For a brief moment, I deserted you. But with great compassion, I will gather you. In overflowing anger for a moment, I hid my face from you. But with everlasting love, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. God is going to extend grace to them despite their unfaithfulness. And the people know that they've been unfaithful. And yet what God does is in the midst of their shame, in the midst of the consequences of their action, he reaffirms his love to them. Look at what he says in verse 10. For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. The story of God with his people is the story of one who applies mercy and grace to a people who are constantly wayward. And what's remarkable is the only reason that they're affirmed, the only reason that God extends this grace to them is not because of their glowing track record, but only rather because of the kindness and mercy of God. They find their security and their support not in their behavior. They find their security and their support not in their track record, but in the compassion of a God who loves them faithfully, even though they have been unfaithful. Aren't you thankful this morning that God's love is not conditioned on your faithfulness? Aren't you thankful that God's love for you is not conditioned on you staying on the straight path? Because if that were the conditions of God's love for us, we would all be doomed because we're all, all wayward people. A barren woman sings in her disappointment, the unfaithful spouse is affirmed despite their unfaithfulness. Third, the city, destroyed city rather, is restored. The third metaphor here is of a city that has been attacked and destroyed. The image of a city that has been sacked and ruined. We find in verse 11, O afflicted one, Storm-tossed and not comforted? Behold, I will set your stones in antinomy and lay your foundations with sapphires. I will make your pinnacles of agate and your gates of carbuncles and all your wall of precious stones. 
God calls the people of Israel a city. This image of a city appears throughout the book of Isaiah as a symbol of God's people and their identity. You can look at chapter one, verse 26, or chapter four, verses two through six, or chapter 12, one through six. The city represents God's people, and eventually, according to verse 13, generations in their restoration of their city will be instructed by the Lord, and there will be peace, all threats of of opposition and terror will be removed in verses 14 and 15, and final victory will be achieved. If you're a Christian living in Ukraine right now and you're watching cities around the capital city of Kiev be destroyed, you can imagine how powerful this image is. See, to think of the glory of what your city was and now to see it utterly destroyed, this is the kind of image that Isaiah wants for the people of God to have in their mind and heart that culminates in verse 17, that no weapon that is fashioned against you shall succeed and you shall refute every tongue that rises against you in judgment. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord and their vindication from me, declares the Lord. So what Isaiah is attempting to do here is to say whether it's a barren woman who's disappointed, whether it's an unfaithful spouse who feels shame, or whether it's a destroyed city that is full of fear. He wants God's people to not merely understand the redemption that he's talking about, he wants them to feel it. Because he has in mind a people who are going to be disappointed. He has in mind a people who are going to feel shame. He has in mind a people who look at the circumstances around them and will think, there's no way we can rebuild this. We can't rebuild our marriage. We can't rebuild our family. We can't rebuild our church. We can't rebuild my life. These people are going to be in exile. They're going to think this is impossible. They're gonna think we've royally messed up. They're gonna think there's no hope. He writes to a people who are gonna feel like they're the ultimate underdogs in ways that are so deeply painful and he wants us to read this text with a different part of our brains. He wants us to read it with our hearts. He wants you to feel that if you are disappointed, you can trust in the mercy of God. He wants you to know that if you've royally blown it and you feel shame because of what you've done, that Jesus is ready to rescue you and clean you up. And he wants you to know that even though the city or your family or your marriage or your life or your country looks like rubble, that God is able to rebuild it and make it something glorious, not because of its earthly power, but because God has a plan for the nations and he rules over all. He wants you to feel this. It sounds so remarkable, doesn't it, to Revelation 21. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. I'm gonna emphasize a few words here. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Think of the pain that you felt in 2004. You might wonder, what are you talking about? Well, 
Didn't something bad in your life happen in 2004? Can't remember? Well, in that moment, it was really bad, right? It was really difficult, really painful. And maybe you can remember something of a pain in 2004. The point in that question is the point in Revelation 21. Listen to me, that there is coming a day when you won't be able to remember the pain of this life right now anymore. It will be like the pain of 2004 that right now seems like a gazillion years ago. And right now in the middle of your difficult moment, you need to hear that God is going to dwell with you. He's going to be your God. He will wipe away all tears from our eyes. This is a truth not just to be celebrated in the future, it's something to be embraced right now. It's like the words of the song that we sang at the beginning of the service, you are good when there's nothing good in me. You are light when the darkness closes in. You are peace when my fear is crippling. So if you're here today and you are in pain, you're afraid, feel shame, some level of weariness. Isaiah keeps pointing us back to the ultimate source of our eternal hope, namely that God is going to be with us so that we'll know he's right with us right now. This is our promised redemption. It's the most amazing underdog story ever written. It's the promised redemption. There is coming a day when God will make all things right. And since that is true, and promised, that then leads to an invitation. Don't make the mistake of thinking that this promised redemption is only about the future. Promised redemption in the future, that's true. That promised redemption is a central truth in Christianity, but we take that truth about the future and we live in light of it right now. And what Isaiah does is he offers two invitations, the invitations to come and the invitation to seek. The invitation to come to him and the invitation to seek him. In other words, what Isaiah is saying is if that's true of a coming redemption, if that unbelievable underdog story has been purchased for us in the person and work of Christ, then we are invited to come to him and to seek him. Chapter 55 shows us where this true comfort comes from. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. Imagine, this is like a herald. This is somebody who looks at a sea of thirsty, hungry people who are broke, and the herald steps up and over top of them says, come, anyone who's thirsty, I've got water. Anybody broke, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Here is the echoes of mercy and grace that we hear in the mouth of Jesus in John chapter seven where it says on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried, listen to this, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. When you understand what Isaiah is talking about for Jesus to say this, no wonder they wanted to kill him. 
Jesus is saying, I'm the one who can really satisfy you. I'm the one that can really give you what you need. And what an invitation it is. In light of the promised graciousness of God, we're invited to come. We're invited to come and to turn away from the things that will not ultimately satisfy. Because verse 12 or 2 says, why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? So where did you satisfy your thirst this week? Where did you run to for your sense of meaning and purpose and fulfillment and identity? Think of the moment this week when you felt insecure. Like seriously, you felt like an 11-year-old kid worried what people thought of you, worried if you were successful, worried if... You could take care of yourself, worried if you were in control. Where, do you, where did you spend your wares this week trying to achieve status and power and wealth? Isaiah 55 invites us to come, to come to Jesus. Verse four, behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader, a commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know. A nation that did not know you shall run to you because of the Lord your God and of the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. He's pointing the people of Israel in the midst of their despair, in the midst of their fear, in the midst of their uncertainty to ask themselves, where do we keep going when we're afraid? And that's a great question for us to ask this morning. Where do we keep going when we're afraid? Because Jesus in the New Testament, invites us from the fulfillment of this Old Testament text to come to him, come to him, come to him, come to him. And then verse six, not only to come to him, but to seek him. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. This, so if, if the first come to me is simply an invitation with a sense of clarity, come to me, this seeking of him has a level of urgency. If coming to him is, that's where we're supposed to go, the seeking him tells us how quickly we should do it. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he's near. Isaiah is embracing here the call for spiritual intentionality. In verses six and seven, there are action verbs like call and seek and forsake and return. Seek, call, forsake, return. So the point is, is that there's mercy and grace available, but it must be sought, it must be pursued, it must be embraced. In other words, God is ready and willing to extend compassion and forgiveness. He's ready to be your help. He's ready to provide the kindness and the grace that you need. But the invitation is for you to come to him and to seek him while he may be found. According to verses eight, through 11, this gracious offering is rooted in who God is. He says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your way or your ways my ways, declares the Lord. 
For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Why does he say this? He says this not just to confound us about the wisdom and the knowledge of God. He says this in order to remind us that when you see something that seems impossible and you think there's no way that can work out, that's when the text steps in and says, but you don't know what happens when God gets in the equation. You don't know what happens when grace enters in to the dynamic that's involved here. He says, for as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but the water of the earth, making it bring forth sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to, be em- to me empty. It shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Every Christian parent whose heart is broken over the waywardness of their children need to stake their claim on this verse. Those weeks and months that you dragged your kids to church and they heard the scriptures and you read the Bible after a meal or you prayed over them, this text tells you that that was not a waste. That God has a purpose and a plan and that word placed in the heart of the soul of a child that needs to be embraced by them but God by his spirit can cause that to be birthed that maybe five, maybe 10, maybe 15 years from now your kid will call you and say, guess what? I've turned my life back over to Jesus and you'll see the beautiful fulfillment of what God's word can do. In the meantime, the question is, how do we then live? What is the effect of this beautiful vision? Look at verses 12 and 13. You shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break into singing and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorns shall come up the cypress. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle and it shall make a name for the Lord and everlasting signs shall not be cut off. When I think of this text, I think of a drum major. The guy in front of the marching band with the big hat. I really don't want to do it unless I throw my back out, but you know, a guy who's doing like this number, right? He's out in front Oh, maybe I'll try a little bit. He's doing this number, you know, up and up and high stepping. He'll be let out. And the idea is this, that drum major is leading out the procession, but the band are the mountains and the hills. It's like the drum major goes out in front and he's like, Grand Tetons, you take the alto part, boom. Black Hills of South Dakota, you take the soprano part. And as the drum major marches, the hills and the mountains break into singing. The trees begin to clap their hands because God's people have been victorious. And instead of thorns, suddenly now massive trees sprout up and there's this beautiful cypress. And briars are now filled with flowing myrtle. And the image is of the people of God marching their way to Zion victorious because God has caused the greatest underdog story that the world has ever seen to be brought to fulfillment. The whole creation joins in this beautiful celebration. It's a global parade as the entire created world marvels that the devil was the first seed in the bracket and God's people were the 16th seed. 
until the scoreboard at the end of the day demonstrated that it wasn't a last second shot that won the game, it was the sacrifice of a savior who bought the redemption of God's people. Isaiah 54 and 55 brings to a climactic conclusion this section where we're invited to believe. I'm aiming today, not for your head, not that you know redemption is possible, not that you know that Jesus died on the cross, not that you know that God can turn it around. I know that you know that. The question is, do you feel that? Like a barren woman who conquers her disappointment. Like a shamed unfaithful spouse who hears, I still love you. And with tears in his or her eyes, can't believe that she's still loved. Or a ruined city, a pictures of before and after. So is the picture of those who come to Jesus and seek him, who seek him while he can be found. So for those of you who are not yet Christians, listen to me, this text is an invitation for you to believe in Christ today. An invitation for you to turn from your sins while there is still time. And I don't just mean time, like you're gonna go out and get hit by a bus, that could happen. Although we don't have many buses here. But I mean this. I mean that you hear the message of the gospel, that you're a sinner, that Jesus died for your sins, and you think in your head, I got time to make this decision. I'll, be, I'll, be, I'll do this next week or the week after that. If you're a child and you grow up in a Christian home and you're so familiar with these truths of who Jesus is, but you haven't owned it, you're just sort of living on the coattails of your parents. Truth be told, you might not be in church today if your parents hadn't made you come to church and it's a great grace that they made you come. But here's the thing, you gotta own it. It's gotta be yours. And the challenge is the longer you wait, the more familiar the message becomes, the more the easier it is to ignore the invitation. The invitation seems less urgent. I stopped at a tire store this week, and while I was paying for some service, I heard that emergency warning sound on the TV that was playing in the lobby. You know what I'm talking about? That and it was a strange time of day, and I was like, oh, what's going on? Global conflict, wonder what's that about? That noise creates urgency, but if that noise was around all the time, it would become so familiar, I wouldn't be inclined to respond. For some of you, that's the danger of Isaiah 55 in your life. You could hear the message that God wants to redeem you. You could hear the message that he wants to restore you. You can hear the message that he wants to deliver you, and you can make the mistake of thinking you're gonna hear it the same way next week. And what you don't know is every time you decide not to respond, it gets easier to not respond. So the question is, why don't you seek the Lord while he may be found and call upon him while he's near? For those of you who are Christians, Oh, friends, this text is a reminder of the miracle of God's grace in your life. It invites us to consider the promise of redemption, the way that God removed our shame, the affirmation of his love that he sets upon us because of Christ. Just think of where you would be today without a personal relationship with Jesus. 
And then can I invite you to take one step? Here we are, it's March, we've had three months into 2022. What's one thing that you could do to increase the velocity of your seeking the Lord? Maybe it's something that you need to give up until Easter. Maybe it's some concerted time in prayer. Maybe it's reconsidering how it is that you spend your time in reading the scripture. Maybe it is that you're still online and you haven't come yet. Come, come if you're able to physically join us. We miss you. What is it that you need to do in order to seek the Lord? The offering here is an incredible one. One in which God offers to his people an amazing turnaround story. Do you have any idea, Christian, where you'd be if it weren't for the grace of God intervening in your life? You may not have felt it this morning when you woke up, but you know, don't you, that you are who you are only because of God's grace. He flipped the script in your life. He rescued you from you. Your whole life is encapsulated in two words, in Christ. And so Isaiah says, when you're disappointed, when you feel crushed, when you don't know what to do, seek the Lord. Seek him while he may be found and call upon him while he is near. That's not madness, that's God's grace. Lord Jesus, oh, would you remind us afresh and anew today of the incredible overflow of mercy that you've extended to us. And Lord, help us in this moment not just to think about it and to know it to be intellectually true, but to actually feel it deeply within our souls. Thank you, God, that you've delivered us from disappointment. You've helped us and rescued us from our shame. You've rebuilt what we've torn down. We pray that you'd help us to believe that. So now, God, as we sing together, would you help us to feel what we can only feel because we sing, not just because we listen to a sermon, but now we pray you'd push the very content of the word of God into recesses of our souls that'll stay with us for the rest of this week because, Lord, we need to buy from you and come to you what we need. So we come now. We seek you. We lean in because we know where we'd be without you. You're our only hope. And we believe that being in Christ makes all the difference in the world. We love you, Lord. Can't believe you've been this kind to us. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.